In Taoism, you have the genuine, genuine person, and that can mean a lot of different things. In the Neijing and also in Chuangzi, they would describe it as like the early humans before they got tied up with their own machinations. You have the five elements, and the five elements are also represented as the pentatonic scale in music. When you have a pentatonic scale, you have a chord. And if all of those notes are right, none of them are sharp or flat, then you have this harmonious chord of the five elements. So the genren is somebody who everything is in balance. So they're natural. There's no need for them to alter themselves. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. My guest in this episode taught himself how to read classical Chinese via textbooks and online tools and forums, so he could read ancient philosophical texts in their original language. Daniel G. Reed's translations include the Hushang Gong commentary on Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching and the Thread of Tao, unraveling early Taoist oral traditions. In this episode, we look at his methodology and motivations for translating texts and the life wisdom he is extracting from them. This includes early Taoist roots, the concept of the true or authentic person, Junran, and the power of virtue. We also take a peek at Dan's meditation practice and the symmetry that he has found between music and Taoism. Dan is a registered massage therapist and a practitioner of Chinese medicine, cranial sacral therapy, and other Chinese modalities. His training in massage therapy and Chinese medicine comes from the Jin Shou, Golden Hand lineage of Tui Na. He also studies and practices Qigong, internal martial arts, and is a multi-instrumentalist and poet. If you are interested in early Taoist traditions, follow along in this conversation as Dan helps us pick up the thread of Tao. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Daniel G. Reed. Dan, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thanks for having me, Todd. I'm really honored to be here. Honestly, this is like, if not my favorite podcast, definitely one of them with the definitely honored to be on this list of amazing guests you have here. That's amazing. Thank you. It's been incredible. The people who I've been able to get to know on the show, it's been such an honor for me to have those opportunities, just to have genuine conversations. I thought it would be enjoyable when I started out doing it, but it has far exceeded any of my expectations. Yeah. Yes. Fascinating guess. I guess I won't go too into that. We'll be on it for a while. It was a pretty good playlist to get into. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me today. I want to acknowledge one of our mutual friends and colleagues, the other Daniel Reed, who connected us. No relationship to you, but also a a Taoist scholar, so kind of strange there, but thanks, thanks to that Dan Reed for introducing us. Let's just jump in first with some of the work that you do, and I know that you translate some Chinese text and you sent me the thread of Tao, which is a book that you have written that is looking at some of the potential roots or influences of Tao pre-Lao Tzu. 
And can you talk to us a bit about that book and really where the inspiration for it came? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, The Threat of the Tao is essentially a translation of Guanzi's proto-Daoist text. So that's got the, the Neyil, which is, the Neyil is uh, fairly well known. It was initially, uh, we'll say, made famous uh, by Howard Roth in, in his book, uh, the Original Tao. And then there's a couple other Taoist texts in there that hadn't, they've been actually translated, but uh, not super accessible. So I was really interested in getting to know more about those. And it was actually one of the first reasons why I started learning how to study, like how to translate classical Chinese was to read these texts because I couldn't find them and was going bit by bit through them. And so these texts, uh, according to tradition, uh, they date back to Guangzhou, who was uh, from around the 7th or 8th century BC. And so he predates uh, Lao Tzu by quite a bit. And then scholars dating in the ways that they do uh, have dated them around the same time as they date the Tao Te Ching. But the complete Tao Te Ching, if we're going to look at the Ma Wengdui uh, text, doesn't really show up until like 200 BC, whereas the Guanzi texts go back to about 350 BC and quite possibly before that. So what really fascinates me is the Guanzi texts seem to have influenced the Tao Te Ching. In a lot of ways, the Tao Te Ching, uh, it kind of reads as though it's assuming that the readership is aware of the Guanzi texts because that culture of uh, sort of self-cultivation, uh, health practices that are largely reliant on the mind and calming the mind and the spirit and so forth. And, and sort of, it's like a preventative medicine uh, that's combined with sort of, I guess, what now we might call psychology, but uh, it goes a lot deeper, as a lot of your listeners in Chinese medicine will understand, you know, psychology and the body and everything else are, are all intertwined in that uh, theory. So it comes from the same sort of culture that gave rise to the Neijing, uh, the Huangdi Neijing, and also the Tao Te Ching. The way that it's written, there's a lot of similarities uh, to parts of the Tao Te Ching as well. Uh, interestingly, some chapters that don't show up in the earliest uh, version of the Tao Te Ching that we have. The Tao Te Ching is also focused on self-cultivation. It has a lot more political implications. A lot of people say it's uh, primarily a political treaties with sort of undertones of, uh, of self-cultivation. And so these Guanzi texts, the Neyi, uh, which means internal work, uh, it's also got the Shin Shu is the art of the heart mind, and the Bai Shin is purifying the heart mind. So Shin Shu is basically an old term for uh, self-cultivation and meditation, and that, in my opinion, was expanded into the the Neyi, and the Neyi means internal work, and it's kind of like there's your external work and then there's your internal work, and so the internal work is essentially Shin Shu. Uh, Shinshu, you can also find in some of, some other sort of contemporaneous texts. Uh, there's the Guigutsu, you can find it later in the uh, Huainanzu. You can also find it in uh, Shunzu, who is uh, a Confucian. That basically 
I would say Shunzu is sort of Neo-Confucian before Neo-Confucianism. He has a lot of Taoist type ideas. Yeah, and so Guanzu goes back. Traditionally, Guanzu, uh, he was a prime minister. He was known as a, a genius and he understood everything about uh, agriculture and you know, war and politics and internal cultivation and just psychology and wisdom in general. Uh, so there's a, a huge uh, encyclopedia of texts that are attributed to him, which were later compiled into the Guanta. And what's also really fascinating to me is that, uh, so the story of Lao Tzu is that he was an imperial librarian. And so if he was in the imperial library, a massive amount of the text in that library would be from Guanzu, because he was so well known as a master of everything to do with you know, statecraft and, and running a nation. Uh, so then, so he would have read these texts. Um, and then when he left to just kind of say, you know, I'm not doing this, uh, I'm not living here anymore. I can't you know, deal with the chaos. And he was asked to write down the Tao Te Ching. A lot of the Tao Te Ching would have come from his learning. Um, these texts that not a lot of people outside of the sort of elite circle would necessarily have access to. Um, and, but he wrote, he wrote about, it, it's, it's really fascinating too, because the, while the texts that I translate in the, from the Guanzu are really focused on self-cultivation, there's many others that deal with politics. And then the Tao Te Ching sort of takes it all and wraps it all up together. And so the, when you're reading the Tao Te Ching, you can really see there's always sort of three levels of meaning, uh, one being about Tao, one being about internal cultivation, and one being about politics. And so when you're learning about the politics, they're always metaphorically speaking about internal cultivation. Uh, my first book, uh, it was actually a translation of Husheng Gong, uh, the Husheng Gong commentary on Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. Uh, and he really uh, extrapolated on that to show how the, the political messages are, are also about self-cultivation. Self Would you say that Guanzi is more of a forefather of Taoism than Lao Tzu, who is often called the father of Taoism? It's tough to say um, because Guanzi doesn't speak so much about the Tao itself. Uh, he doesn't go so much into cosmology, at least in the Proto-Taoist text. There is some texts in there uh, that are about uh, the five elements and having to do with sort of agriculture, the calendar and so forth. Uh, although those might have been written later, the, the Proto-Taoist texts uh, scholars say are the earliest texts from this compilation, uh, which was compiled uh, around the first century BC. In a lot of ways, yes, especially considering the way that Taoism developed uh, into forms of self-cultivation, I would say yes. Um, and, I, and again, I, I think that when people are reading the Tao Te Ching, or at least when the Tao Te Ching was written, it was written for an audience that had read these uh, Guanzi texts or that who understood them and understood uh, the Shin Shu, the art of the heart mind. And so, so that his metaphors would land more easily. Mm -hmm. What is the heart mind? 
Can you explain that concept for listeners who may not be familiar with Chinese medicine? Sure. So in Chinese medicine and early Chinese culture in general, uh, the heart was sort of the, the house of the spirit. And so the mind and the spirit, uh, when they're talking about the heart, they're often actually referring to the mind and the consciousness as well as the heart. So it could be either or depending on the context, which is uh, generally the, the case in whenever reading classical Chinese is looking at context. And the heart or the shin is often credited with basically being the ultimate organ of preserving our health and longevity. It's essential for us to have good health and well-being. Yes, in a, in a great manner of speaking, but it's, this, it's essentially the heart-mind is the emperor. If the emperor is not right, then everything else tends to go wrong. But at the same time, uh, you know, in Chinese medicine, they have this political sort of hierarchy or what, whatever you want to call uh, the metaphor for the organs. So the, the liver is the general um for example and uh you know if the other organs are rebellious then they can they can also overthrow uh, the heart mind and uh which kind of leads me on another a couple of other tangents actually one i guess I'll, i'll get back to which is about how the the heart mind is stated in the shinshu as the emperor uh and that's also found in the neijing so uh you get a bit more about how we can sort of cultivate the heart uh, just ourselves without uh, without a, a physician um, in order to sort of govern the body through the through the heart through our, through ourselves. Um, but the other is that, in my opinion, uh, it's really the the heart. Yes, is very important, but the heart is you know intrinsically connected, especially with the kidneys, and the kidneys. So the kidneys have this. It's like the water element, this sort of dark abyss water, um, and the heart is like the you know, the light. Um, they talk in Chinese medicine about shang uh, ming, uh, which is the brilliance of the spirit that that can sort of come and go in the heart. Uh, it has a lot to do with intelligence and inspiration, and, uh, you know, creativity and so forth, and. But for that to to come about, everything else has to sort of be in harmony. And the so in Chinese medicine we have the the Shaoyin channel with the, the heart and the kidneys. And for somebody who's practicing self-cultivation, uh, sort of stilling that those waters, like Lao Tzu says, can you be so still that the can you still the waters until the mud settles of its own? And, you know, the kidneys being uh, connected with fear in Chinese medicine as well. And so it just, you know, if, when somebody is practicing a, a stillness meditation, sitting meditation, getting to that point where the kidneys are nice and still, they're not sort of like rupturing and, and you know, causing all sorts of ripples in the water. And then when it's still, it's like the, you know, that light from the spirit can sort of shine off it and there's... That, that interaction, you know, that's like the water can start to steam and then and you can have uh, this process, this very natural process that that brings about health and, and a balance 
and uh, just all of the other wonderful things that are you know that are contained in our body when uh, when they're allowed to to be at their natural state. I'm glad you mentioned Shenming or spiritual brightness or spiritual intelligence. In the Neya, in your translation, it says the ultimate spiritual intelligence, luminous. It understands the myriad things. Right. Yeah. There's some interesting things in Chinese medicine that really explain about how, uh, you know, it's really important that our heart is, is in balance because it's the heart that recognizes what else is going on in the body. And if the heart is not right, then it won't notice when when we have liver chi stagnation, for example, that's causing all kinds of havoc, but the heart mind is just occupied uh, with something else. And so it'll those those imbalances will go on until they become more and more serious. So, you know, it's like the the Shan Ming is luminous, it sees everything. And uh, which is also part of the reason why the self-cultivation of Shan Shin Shu uh can regulate health right because it, your body is gonna feel but oh, there's something wrong there okay well i'm gonna yeah kind of wait until that regulates itself for example it's the in- intuition of the heart i'm curious dan like this is quite a body of work to translate any classical chinese text what was your inspiration for looking at the Guanzo works and also the previous text that you've translated? Um, well, largely I wanted, to, I, I didn't really feel like I had access to the sort of teachers that I would want to learn from. Uh, well, actually many that I would want to learn from, but I, I would have to have completely change my life to follow them, you know? And so I really wanted to be able to find a way to learn this through through texts, like to understand the Tao Te Ching and its meanings, and um, you know, there's a, a saying in one, uh, I think it was in Confucian Analects about somebody who uh, he couldn't find the teachers, but he just he did a lot of reading and just sort of picked the best parts from all the different teachers that he was reading, and then from that sort of formed his teacher. And so I figured that that's a, a sort of side way of of trying to you know, get somewhere, or at least be, at least be ready for a teacher when they, when they arrive. Right. But it's not like you're just picking up a work that's in English and reading it like Shakespeare or something. You actually taught yourself Chinese. Yeah. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, well, classical Chinese, uh, and also uh, a bit of Mandarin, but I started learning classical Chinese, uh, several years before uh, learning Mandarin. Uh, which I'm still quite a beginner at, largely just because I was constantly seeing that if you really want to understand the Tao Te Ching, you need to read it in its original language. And so, you know, I started just kind of looking at the characters and trying to understand the different meanings in the characters and then seeing how, you know, everyone who's read more than like three or four translations of the Tao Te Ching knows that, that there's just so many different ways that it can be translated. Yeah, I started with that just kind of going through the characters and then eventually you started to understand the, uh, some of the grammatical things that are going on there. And uh, yeah, and just looked more into that and it just became a hobby, you know, like I, 
I haven't had television for many years and I never had a game console because I knew I would just never get that time back. And so you know, translating and studying classical Chinese medicine just became a, like a pastime, you know, a, a hobby. How did you learn the language? A bunch of different avenues. It's much easier to do now than it was back in like Arthur Whaley's time. So Arthur Whaley, you know, is another translator who's self-taught. Uh, he also never learned uh, modern Mandarin, but there's there's a couple books actually that I think he probably used that I also used. I knew you were going to ask me this, so I've got the names. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them is Progressive Exercises in Chinese Written Language, and that's by Bullock. And that was published in 1912, so you can find it online, uh, you know, ethically because the copyright's long long expired. And another great one is An Introduction to Literary Chinese by Jay Brandt that came out in 1927. Um, but the first one, Progressive Exercises in Chinese Written Language, that one's like, it's really easy to follow. Uh, it's fun. It's a fun book to go through. But um, other things, if somebody wants to learn classical Chinese, uh, Polyblanks, uh, Outline of Classical Chinese Grammar, that's a, a newer one that's pretty essential. And uh, also other good resources, uh, there's a Stanford online classical Chinese uh, course that's free. Uh, you just go uh, chinesetext.stanford.edu. And uh, yeah, those are all great resources. But beyond that, I mean, you have to start, you know, you learn the radicals of the Chinese characters so that you can recognize them in the characters and then it starts to become a bit easier. Uh, to to grasp new characters. And I mean, people have said to me a number of times, oh, that must have been so hard to learn classical Chinese without learning modern Mandarin first. But actually, it's I think it's simpler. It's a lot simpler in a way uh, because the, the grammar is a lot simpler for one. And also, of course, there, it's not spoken. So <laughs> anytime I'm trying to translate something, I've got all of my stuff on my computer i can just look it up in in dictionaries and double check everything in the uh you know in the grammar text and uh, what's especially useful beyond anything is uh, ctext.org chinesetext.org um and in that you can take a you know a phrase or a sentence or a word and punch it in and it gives you like all the text for within like a hundred years, if you want, uh, that have that phrase and whatnot. And so you can see all the different ways that it's used. Um, and that's just like, that, there's no way somebody could have done that in the past. You know, you, nobody can just go through a paper book and, and find like hundreds of different examples as to how these, these phrases and so forth are used. So that's a, that's a massive uh, you know, sort of internet futuristic uh, benefit that we have. Yeah, that's so cool. How did you pick up the thread of the Tao? And by that, I mean, when did Taoism come into your life? Yeah, so uh, probably I was about 15 or 16. My brother uh, was going to an alternative school and he had the Tao of Pooh. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. So I, that just like spoke to me in all kinds of different ways because, uh, you know, I grew up like in a went to a Catholic school and so on and so forth. 
And so reading about, you know, Wu Wei and Turan and naturalness and things like that, it's like, oh, this makes complete sense. Like, why doesn't, why doesn't everybody know about this? Yeah, you know, I'll give it a little bit of defense for that book too, because a lot of people uh, sort of give it some shade, but it, it gives a good introduction, at least for, for a beginner on uh, things like Wu Wei and naturalness. It doesn't go much deeper than that, but, but it definitely gives you some info on that if you didn't have it before. Uh, but yeah, so from there, uh, then in university, uh, I studied uh, communication studies and humanities as a double major at York University in Toronto. And uh, so I think it was the first one was, was for an anthropology course. And I did a presentation on the uh, Zen tea ceremony. So basically a cross of uh, Japanese and Chinese tea ceremony, especially on the huts and so forth, tea huts. And when I was doing research for that, just seeing all the other books next to the ones I was looking for just blew my mind. Uh, you know, they had Harold Roth's book, uh, Original Tao, uh, and just so many others. And so I just, you know, just devoured everything I could from there. And then uh, going into the, uh, especially the used bookstores later, uh, this one near my house at the time, or the house that I was living in. Um, and they had tons of translations by uh, Thomas Cleary and some others. And it's just like, you know, there's such treasures, especially now, because you know, 200 years ago, you did, nobody had access to these texts unless you were like a Taoist initiate for the most part. Uh, so to be able to buy a translated version of these, you know, for what, like $20, it's like this, this like cultural treasure, like, you know, I can't resist. So I just, you know, grabbed everything I could from that and read them. And uh, yeah, and, and the, the more you read, the more, the more you read of each book, the more the other books start to make sense. And, uh, you kind of get new ideas about things. And it's, yeah, there's just, it's beautiful. You know, it's, the culture is just gorgeous. So. Mm -hmm. Now, I find a big part of lives of people who are scholars of the classic text or Taoism is the inner work, the Nei Gong, so to speak. What sort of inner work or practice do you have? Okay. Uh, so I practice Qigong and sitting meditation. Uh, I also uh, practice some of the internal martial arts, uh, Shin Yi and Bagua Zhang. Uh, I played around with some Tai Chi uh, quite a while back as well, um, which I still do to some degree uh, in terms of like this, the repeated practices like uh, cloud hands and so forth. Yeah, and it's hard to say, you know, like what else is an internal practice depends on where you're looking at it from. If you're looking at it from a uh, sort of monastic uh, Taoist tradition, um, you know, there's that sort of set of internal practices. And then, uh, you know, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, the internal practices are also, you know, to do with just uh, not taking things too personally and stuff like that is also a... a perhaps even more challenging internal practice at times. But. What have you noticed the impact on your life has been for your deepening into Taoist studies and Taoist practices? If I don't meditate in the morning compared to a day, well, it, it's generally the opposite. Like I'm generally meditating every day. And then, but some days if I have to go and do something, I just feel completely different. 
when I walk out of the, the apartment. Um, you know, after you meditate, it can just observe everything so much better, so much easier. Things don't get to you, you know, uh, all the sort of patterns and expectations that people have and sort of expect you to have. Uh, you don't get pulled in by that because you're just sort of grounded um, in your in yourself, you know, in, in your in your natural way. And uh, it's just kind of beginning the day by stilling the waters like I was talking about before. Um, it's just, yeah, it just opens everything up. Uh, kind of like we were talking about uh, Shan Ming. You know, it's like if you can go about the day with your with your shun open, and it's just just a completely different experience. You know? What does your seated meditation practice look like, or feel like? Um, so, I actually gave a bit of a description in the at the end of uh, the thread of Tao uh, for kind of a, a beginning. Um, but basically, I'll sit down and uh, you know on the floor with my cushion. And I'll start just like not even really meditating, just kind of sitting, getting used to sitting. And, uh, you know, I, if I'm asked how people should begin meditating, um, if they haven't started, they should really just get used to doing nothing for like 20 minutes. Uh, you know, no TV, no incense, no music, nothing, just absolutely nothing. And then, you know, so that you can just relax into just being right and then once you once you're comfortable there um there's a number of different uh i guess you could say sort of prompts in ways different things will come to mind depending on the day as to where i want to go um oftentimes i'll just kind of get into it and uh, you know there's a line in uh, i think it was in the Baishin. Uh, where they talk about the untrodden mountain paths. And oftentimes that's what meditation can be for me. You know, you sit down and you just, you just kind of go through that untrodden path. You know, you just, your mind is clear and, uh, you know, it just, it's like, I don't know where it's going to go necessarily. But as long as it, if, when my mind, when my thoughts start to cease, and the mind can sort of open up and it's it, it's kind of it's it's a really good metaphor you know the those sort of untrodden mountain paths that it just you don't know what what it's going to be but it's pretty much always going to be beautiful in a way if your mind is clear enough uh and if i some another practice i'll do if i can't really settle my mind is just uh doing it a 10 count of breaths. So like exhaling, counting one, inhaling, exhaling, counting two. And and just have it so that um, I'm not thinking anything between those numbers. And you generally the idea is the only thing that I want to think is that number when it when it comes up. Uh, and sometimes other thoughts will come up and that's fine as long as you don't you know follow it down a direction. Um, you know you're going to have insights and things like that. It's like, great. You know, you got that insight, take it, you know, put it in your pocket and continue on. Um, and just doing that just really helps to open the mind. And uh, another big part of it for me, I like to meditate with a window open 
because hearing the, the natural sounds of birds and so forth, there's sort of a, a, I guess you might call it a mantra, but I don't repeat it over and over again, which is something I tell myself is uh, abiding nowhere, let the mind arise. And uh, that's from a, that's a sort of Zen saying. And, you know, the idea that the mind is created by what it, what it takes in, what it creates, but also largely what it takes in. If your mind is clear, then your mind is essentially only what it's taking in. So your mind becomes the birds, right? Your mind becomes this and that. But the idea is to not settle on any of those things. So even though I'm hearing the birds, I'm not focusing you know, on the birds. So I'm just allowing everything uh, to, you know, allowing the mind to arise without abiding anywhere. And that can be really powerful in a, in a number of ways. Um, largely because it allows the mind to maintain, to remain clear, um, but also open and receptive to things. So when I'm finished meditating, I can still, I still have that receptivity. You know, I can still walk around and like not get hit by cars and stuff because I'm still completely aware, but I can, but I can maintain uh, the clarity um, because I've practiced and gone, gone through the, the sort of, minor agitations of it and whatever might come up if I tried to just do it out in the street. You know? So it's good to do it first uh, when you're just sitting by yourself. Uh, so that's a big part of it. And then, you know, as it goes on, there's there's a lot of different uh, things that could be said. One, uh, one other kind of main one that I go through oftentimes, you'll see in the Gwegutsu, which I've also translated in in Thread of Tao, because it seems to be heavily influenced by the Guanzu. And one of the things that Guegutsu says uh, is to allow the, the will to become uh, completely real. And so the will, I mean, what is the will? The will is often, uh, well, in Chinese it's Ju, and that is often also used to mean the mind, it also often used to mean uh, emotions, uh, of course, it also means the will. So all of those things together, you know, it's like awareness, but it's it's like there's a constant uh, sort of like in the in the Yijing when you have the the fire trigram below and the water trigram above, they're constantly interacting because the fire is always rising and the water is always sinking. And so the will, it's like the mind that's always sort of moving, I guess, but in a sense of moving like it's always becoming right it's always like existing and and it's living it's going through life right so when our when that will becomes completely true or completely real you know that's a point that i want to at least reach for a while uh when i'm meditating because that's where like that's where the you know the natural person really is i think for everybody um, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to have like years and years and years of experience in meditating to get there. You can, you know, if you spend enough time just kind of just sitting and being and letting things happen, you know, follow the, the Wu Wei path uh, of, uh, you know, non-action, then eventually it, things start to purify and the, and the will just becomes pure and true. Um, and on that subject also, Lao Tzu talks in, chapters that possibly chapter three if i'm not mistaken uh where there's a sort of 
controversial statement he makes about uh, the, the sages, the sages' way of governance uh, softens the will uh, and nourishes the belly and strengthens the bones. Uh, and a lot of people, of course, will read that and think it's talking about this, you know, weakening the population so they're easier to control. But no, as the sage governing himself, right, is softening the the will and you know. The, the trying to reach some level of something that we're expecting to happen um, and nourishing the belly and just, you know, remaining sort of present in the belly, you know, kidneys are down there as well, which we talked about, uh, and strengthening the bones. Well, the kidneys and the bones are connected in Chinese medicine. So when you, when you soften the will, you know, you can allow the, the kidney and the, the jing and everything to settle and stabilize and that would strengthen the bones uh, if we we're going theoretically at the very least. Can you elaborate more on the concept of, you mentioned, I think, natural person, but the concept of genuine person or a genuine human, because it's really emphasized in a lot of the classic texts from the Huang Dine Jing to the Tao Te Jing, the Zhuangzi, Guangzi. What is that concept of a genuine person and what do we have to learn from that? Mm -hmm. So in Taoism, you have the genren is what they, have. they would describe that uh, genuine person. And that can mean a lot of different things. Is it really depends also on translators and who's talking about it. Oftentimes it, they'll translate it as the realized person. Um, in the Neijing and also in Chongzi, they, they would describe it as like the early humans, you know, before they got tied up with with their own sort of machinations and and somebody who's just really connected with nature and you know like the their five the five elements within them are in harmony. That's one way that I like to think about it, I suppose, is that you have the five elements, and the five elements are also represented as a pentatonic scale in music. And when you have a pentatonic scale, you you have a chord. And if all of those notes are right, none of them are sharp or flat, then you have this like harmonious chord of the five elements. When somebody is completely in harmony, those five elements act as, as this one chord that's a very nice chord. It's got the, the six and the five and the three and the, and the two or nine. Thing. So the genren is somebody who everything is in balance. So they're, they're natural. There's no, there's no need for them to sort of alter themselves, you know, like when I was talking about uh, the will becoming completely true, it's like when you're, when you feel that happening, it's sort of like understanding the difference of sprouts coming out and sprouts being pulled out. Right. And you can, and you can feel the difference when you're going through that as to, as to when it's sort of pushing on its own, uh, kind of like that, that wood energy of, of the sprout moving up and out. And when it's, when it's your mind saying, oh, it should go here, it should be like this. This is the expectation that I'm supposed to reach this. And so that's when you're trying to pull and that's not, that's not what you want to do. So that when the will is just naturally you know, pushing through, there's none of that going on. And I think that's the base of the idea of genren. Um, but it can get really esoteric, I think as well, if you, know, if you go into monastic uh, ideas about it. And it seems like, just from my perspective anyway, there's so much contrivance in the world today that I would hazard to say that probably most people aren't aware of what their genre is, what their genuine 
person is because we're always trying to conform to gain validation externally rather than focus more on the internal work and the internal peace and ease. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have more more things to sort of conform to. You know, all of our conveniences end up making us, you know, then we have to figure out how to fit into that convenience. And then, you know, we kind of forget our own ability to do these things. Is finding that Jun Run, that genuine person in each of us, kind of akin to finding our purpose, finding our Tao? Yeah, uh, I sure hope so. (laughs) Because it's not going to be much fun going through that purpose if if it's not really, you know, us being who we are. It's hard for me to give like a sort of panacea type of advice on that. You know, maybe that call center is killing you, but maybe it's what you need to do right now so that you can make some yeah. and get to where you need to be. One of your translations, a verse, and the Neya, which I wrote down just because I, I love it, is when virtue has ripened, wisdom comes forth and the myriad things attain fruition. Yeah. What is meant by virtue or de, as in the Tao De Jing? Okay. So this is a really broad uh, subject. So I'm going to go over to Heshangan, uh, my translation of the Heshangan commentary. Um, in, I think it's chapter 50 or 51 of that, he gives a really key advice uh, or ex- sort of clarification about do, where he says that uh, do is the one. So when we talk about, and or maybe it was that the one refers to do. So Du is basically, oh, there's so many different ways to explain it, but, uh, you know, it's like the the yang of Tao in a way, because Tao is essentially the, it's like the setup, it's the principles of everything. And then virtue is sort of going through those principles. Um, It's the nourishing aspect of that. It's like life is set up to be constantly going on. And that's because of, of the, uh, the, the foundation, the sort of blueprint that everything is laid on is, is Tao. And then because of that foundation, there can be the, just this constant ongoing of life. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, in our, in, in sort of Western language, uh, when people say God is love, it's this same sort of idea, I think, um, that, you know, it's it's the, the nurturing principle, but it's a lot different than God is love because God is love comes from a, a very different tradition um, that comes from a very different cultural place that was uh, largely connected to its uh, political ideas um whereas the Taoism was very countercultural at its for its time um it was very anti-authoritarian but not just for the sake of being anti-authoritarian and rebellious but because they realized that this is the way nature works you know they understood by looking at the body and how the body gets healthy that when the body lives its natural way it's the most healthy and it's the most resilient to uh, illness so virtue is is just all tied up with that. Whaley actually translates virtue as the power. Mm-hmm. 
And so when I read this from that perspective, when power has ripened, wisdom comes forth. I see the power as basically us attaining that genrun, that genuine person, attaining that authentic version of us. And once we've done that and we can live in that state of power, then the wisdom will come forth and the myriad things attain fruition. The myriad things fall into place. Yeah, well, when, when we reach that level of uh, stability, you know, those things start to happen. I mean, that's essentially virtue. It's essentially the coming in. You know, we've made the space where we've settled the sort of image of Tao is more clear and virtue can sort of come through it, right? It's like the it's like the traffic is cleared and now virtue can like come through the roads. And so its power uh, goes through us and, and it starts to to heal uh, heal us and bring us back to that that image of Tao. You know, the Tao Te Ching's, uh, one of the chapters says Tao is like pulling a bow. Uh, you know, what's high becomes low and what's low become high. And it, you know, it fills in the, fills in the dirt like this, right? It fills in the, the holes and so forth. And it just balances everything and brings it back. And so that's virtue. That's virtue that's doing that. I'm going to sh- shift gears here for a bit because I see a guitar behind you. Yeah. You talked about the pentatonic scale in the way that a musician would. And I have found in so many people who I have interviewed, especially Taoist scholars, there's a passion for music, and most of them are musicians. You're a musician, correct? Correct, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And has that influenced your path of Tao or is your path of Taoism influenced your music and have you also seen that kind of common thread with the people who you've known who are are more aware of Taoism uh, I would say yeah um, I mean I think you know people that are drawn to Taoism are drawn to uh, you know life and freedom and expression uh, and just the natural way, and music is so much a part of that. You know, so much a part of expressing yourself truly and authentically, because there's no words. You know, you can just speak however however you feel. Especially the music that we listen to, most people listen to now, uh, it goes back to the African American experience of not being able to express themselves, and so music was a way to express themselves. And so it's just such a, a healing, cathartic thing that we have now, uh, the way that music is now. I guess it's always been like that. You can look at the Gu Qin, uh, which is, uh, you know, the ancient uh, Chinese zither. People might, if they don't know it, they might recognize it. it sounds a bit like a Chinese sitar or slide guitar. But so that was also very expressive. But the, the sort of palette of what we can express and the, the facility that people have to do it uh, spontaneously, it's super good for us. And, and definitely can help you just get get to that authentic feeling of it's, you know, of like writing your own story. People say, you know, it doesn't matter what they say because now I know how I feel. This is how I feel. And nobody can stop me from expressing it. You know, and that, and that centers people. I mean, is that Taoism? I don't know. You know, uh, it's kind of what I like to call grandma wisdom. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's everywhere. Like everybody, you know, you can talk about these things from any perspective, but it's just kind of being human and having some culture. Where can people find your books and 
what are you working on now? Okay. Uh, so you can, if you want, you can, uh, you know, call your local indie bookstore, have them order it. It's, uh, I do have it through that, through uh, something that the bookstore is going to order it through. Uh, otherwise, just find it on Amazon. Uh, it's in Kindle. Or, well, they are in Kindle and uh, paperback. And I'm actually working on a few books right now. Um, literally three that kind of get to one or the other, depending on uh, how I've been, you know, what, where my mind is going. But I've been especially focusing on uh, one recently, which uh, I've been keeping kind of quiet because I wanted to make sure I got really close to finishing it uh, before I talk too much about it and give someone else the idea to do it. And I thought I might have it ready for like spring, but I'm looking to have it more ready probably by the fall, winter. And that's going to be looking at uh, the I Ching and how it's connected to Lao Tzu's philosophy. Um, and uh, a lot of people have said in the past that the Tao Te Ching was a commentary on the I Ching. Um, and some people find that kind of just not possible. But really, it's all there. The, the wisdom that's in the lines of, of the I Ching in the Duke of Zhao's uh, lines, especially. Well, and also the King Wen, the main decision. Uh, they all reflect uh, the, the same ideas in the Tao Te Ching. So if you're, if you're gonna follow the wisdom in those lines, it really helps to be able to see how allowed to explain the same idea and kind of give you some other ways to go with that. You mentioned earlier how many different variations there are on the translations. Do you have a favorite translation of the I Ching? Uh, I, I look at a number of them. Uh, favorite? Huh. And I presume you've you've translated it as well. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So, of course, at the moment, my, my own translation is going to be my favorite because it's exactly as I think it's supposed to be. But How long does it take you to translate something like that, like the I Ching? Well, I've been working on that for a long time because I, you know, translating for me, it's like drinking tea. Like I just, I just sit down and do it. And it's like, I, you know, I, I feel like if I, I'm really, I, I'm self-published and I'm really glad that I'm self-published because it's completely up to me as to when it needs to be ready. I'm, I think it, actually when did I start? I think I might've started doing it before I even started working on the Third of Tao. I, yeah, actually I did. I, I got it started and then I did the Third of Tao and then I've been going back to it. I mean, sometimes I'll go through the sort of first draft of a chapter in, I don't know, five hours or so, maybe like three hours. And other days I'll spend three hours on like one uh, line of the I Ching. <laughs> so translate, I mean, the translation of the line itself actually doesn't take that long. But then it's trying to figure out how it fits in with everything else and looking at all the different uh, potential meanings and going through, you know, all the historical things that I can, um, because it's been translated so many times and I, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm aware of what others have said, but also that I'm going to be offering something that's uh, worth writing again. What has the reception been like for the thread of Dow? I've actually been surprised like how well it, it's, it took a little while to get going um, because I'm self-published and I'm not like a, you know, a marketing 
master. Uh, uh, but in the last like year or so, uh, it's, the sales are picking up quite a bit, and uh, and the the reception I'm getting from you know the people who who I follow and who I respect uh, you know for their work and so forth, and uh, personally as well of course, but. Uh, yeah, that's been like really encouraging for me, especially uh, same with the, the Shen Gong. Um, and that really sort of inspires me to keep going, you know, and like Red Pine, you know, said, gave me some nice words about it. And Michael Sasso is just, you know, he's a professor emeritus of classical Chinese at the University of Hawaii for a self-taught uh, translator. You know, that's just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, and other, and other people like who are, uh, Taoist monastics and so forth, you know, that are received it really well. And yeah, it's 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 humbling to be so uh, honored, <laughs> I guess. Well, I think it's so cool what you're doing and how you're going about doing this. I and mean, you've really, you're following your own path in this. And no matter how many translations and variations there are of these ancient texts, there's so much to be gleaned from each new one, and I can only imagine what the experience must be like for you to be creating your own translations and really putting your own uh, meaning into the text, and I think it's great. Well, let me say on that note, too, uh, that my translation of the Heshengong commentary in the back, I have a sort of a crash course on reading classical Chinese. Oh, cool. Uh, I give, like, sort of the main uh, words that you'll need to to understand the grammar and then some of the characters that you'll find a lot in that text. So it's it's sort of a crash course, especially for that text, because it's going to be not necessarily as you know useful for others. But yeah, if you want to learn classical Chinese, then you can go through that and memorize the the list of characters that I have, and then follow it along in the text, because all the, the the original Chinese is above my translations. And I kind of wrote it in a way for people like myself who need to reference things constantly to, to be able to read it um, so that it's easy enough to look at the original and look at the translation and understand which word pertains to which. Um, and also because, you know, I'd always wanted to read the Tao Te Ching in its own language. Um, so, you know, this is a way for people to, to be able to do that, to be able to look at the the Chinese word, the Chinese characters at the same time and see like, okay, there was actually, you know, three words, but he used five. So this word and that word have this meaning. And then, you know, if they, if they want, they can look them up further. And, and yeah, and, and eventually you'll get familiar with it because there's not a huge amount of words uh, in that text. Like there's a fair amount of repetition. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. Where can people is there anywhere they can learn more about you or is it just through your books? Uh, if you want to go to my uh, Hosheng, it's a Hesheng Gong Facebook page. Uh, it's actually spelled in the Wade Giles style, which is H-O-S-H-A-N-G-K-U-N-G. -G. Uh, so that's facebook.com slash Hosheng Kong. Okay. Yeah, I've got some, it's kind of a blog thing that I get to every once in a while. I'm going to have new stuff out. I'll, I'll put something up there as well. Perfect. Well, I'll put that in the show notes as well as links to the two books. 
really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today. It's been great to get to know you a bit. That was my pleasure. It's, yeah, great to, great to talk with you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. It, it's always a joy for, well, for me anyway, to be able to read the work and to learn more about the ancient philosophies and to be able to hopefully become a, a better genron, a more genuine person. Well, I'm honored. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Dan. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Daniel G. Reed. For more about Dan and his translations, please visit his Facebook page, Hoshang Kung. That's H-O-S-H-A-N-G-K-U-N-G at Facebook.com. Also check out his books that are available on Amazon. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services and holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, create a little harmony in your life with some ancient wisdom.